discussing some of the concepts of Magid. The mitzvah that we have to, to, to talk about and to discuss the Seder and we got underway a little bit, but we didn't really get into the Haggadah itself in terms of Magid. And what I'd like to do this evening is I'd like to, I'd like to go through some of the, uh, obviously we can't go through the whole thing. It's, uh, it's a monumental job, but I'd like to just go, you know, pick particular selections and point out certain ideas and certain concepts which are noteworthy and very thematic to what the holiday of Pesach is all about. And certainly by no means um, is what we're saying complete. Uh, there are virtually hundreds and hundreds of commentaries on the Haggadah. But I'll share with you a little bit what, um, what I've seen and what I've discussed at Seder tables over the years in this regard. So let's turn to page 9 and we'll just flow a little bit with the Haggadah and we'll see some of the some very interesting ideas that the Haggadah suggests and however far we get, we'll get. We basically covered the concepts of Pesach Matzamar, the concept that we should speak about Yitzhiyas Misrayim, uh, the mitzvahs. I'd like to dedicate a little time next week to talking about the particular mitzvahs, what you have to do in terms of how much you have to drink, how much you have to eat, when, why, those kinds of things. Because if you know all of the concepts and you don't know how to perform the mitzvahs, that doesn't make too much sense either. So we'll do some of that next week also. I'd also like to take a part of the Haggadah that's somewhat neglected either because people are asleep already. I'd like to take some of the songs at the end of the Haggadah, the Chadgadja and others, which are really, really very profound things. And maybe dedicate a little time to that also, which is under normal circumstances not given any good time. But for now, let's start on page 9, the answer. We were slaves to Paro in Mitzrayim. Those of you that were by the class Tuesday night know that we made reference to the fact that the uh, Egyptian exile was an exile on two levels. There were two forms of alienation that we experienced. We experienced an alienation which was the government of Egypt's project to do, and that was to basically uproot any kind of a concept in monotheism, and that we look towards Paro and the enforcement of the government that tried to destroy that, and then we speak about Mitzrayim, the subtle influences of the environment and the alienation spiritually that the environment created for the Jew. So the Jew was bombarded in exile by the force of the country that he lived in in terms of the, 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 um, the clout that the country had in terms of its government and that's representative of Paro and then the Jew also was bombarded by the environment of Mitzrayim that had nothing to do with the government just what you're living with the lifestyle of the people around you and that's what that God is saying we were slaves and we experienced the bombardment of what? of Paro in Mitzrayim and this is really our sages point this out to us. This is not just some homiletical, you know, homiletical treat over here. Our, our commentaries talk about Melech Kasha or Medina Kasha. A difficult king and a difficult, difficult country. And what that means is that there was an onslaught to tear the Jew away from what he was both from the Melech, from the king, in other words, from the force of the government, and from the Medina, and from the environment as well. Vayotzienu, let's continue, Vayotzienu, thank you very much. Vayotzienu, Hashem Elekeinu Misham, and God took us out, He extricated us from there, Biyot Chazaka Uvizrawa with a very strong hand and with an outstretched arm. And essentially what this refers to when we talk about Yad Chazak and Zroa Natuya, most commentaries think that Yad Chazak and Zroa Natuya merely means that he really gave it to the Egyptians over the head. And that's the way that he took us out. But our commentaries say on a deeper level that the strong hand and the outstretched arm is really on a spiritual level as well. 
In other words, as much as the Egyptian needed to get it over the head, we also needed a different strong arm and a different outstretched arm, the kind of a spiritual arm that would yank us out of the levels that we had become exposed to. So when we talk about Yad Chazraka and Zerua the strong hand and the outstretched arm, whatever those terms mean, it doesn't only mean it in the way that we saw, quote-unquote, the punishment of the Egyptian, but it's also on a spiritual level what we needed to be extricated from the, the spiritual situation that we found ourselves in. And hence, we come upon a concept which we once spoke about in a, in a parasha class, that there was a, there were simultaneous events, simul, there was one, there were constant events going on that had simultaneous effect, one on the Egyptian and one on the Jew at the same time. We spoke about this concept in terms of the ten plagues, where each plague was a punishment for the Egyptian and a form of revelation of God for the Jew. And our Chazal, our sages, again say the same concept. Naguf Mitzrayim. It was a, a, it was a plague. It was a, a punishment for Mitzrayim. And that very same thing that was a punishment for Mitzrayim, roughly the Israel. It was a healthy revelation of God involvement for the Jew. So the same thing that was a punishment for one became a significant um, study of God for the Jew. And again, in the concept of Yad Chazak Uzra we have the same concept. The Egyptian experienced the Yad Chazak and the Zerua He experienced the powerful hand and an outstretched arm in the, in the sense of punishment. But simultaneously, with his experiencing the Yad Chazak Uzra the Jew also experienced it on his level. And therefore, because Yad Chazak Uzra doesn't only mean what happened to the Egyptian, but on a spiritual level, it refers to what happened to the Jew. The, the Balagada continues and says, And were it not for the fact that God took us out of Egypt, If it weren't for the fact that God took us out of Egypt, we, our children, our grandchildren, would still be obligated to the forces of Paro and to the forces of Mitzrayim. Now, what is this supposed to mean? Most of the commentaries ask a very simple question, and I'm sure you've thought of it yourself and yourself and heard of the question in the past. Political changes, political scenes always change. For the Balagada, for the person that put together, for the group of people that put together the Haggadah to make this statement that if we wouldn't have gone out then, we'd still be there, who says? The political situation changes constantly, and we could have, we could very well have left. Egypt could have been crushed economically, politically, in many different ways, and we could have been freed from Egypt. But the point over here, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that what the, the point of the people that put together the Haggadah is not a description of geography. That if we wouldn't have gone out geographically at that moment in time, we would never have thunk of getting up and leaving later. That's not what the Baal Haggadah is saying. What the author of the Haggadah is saying over here is that in a spiritual sense, if we wouldn't have experienced and if God wouldn't have intervened and taken us out of Egypt in a spiritual exodus from Egypt at that point, we would really be tied to Paro and tied to Mitzrayim, which I referred to before, and all of our generations would be that way as well. This is what we commonly say. So in other words, what we say is that while geographically we might have left, empires rise and fall, but the mark that Egypt would have made on us would have been a mark forever, and even if Egypt wouldn't be there, but Egypt would be inside of us. 
And therefore, when we look at the exodus from Egypt, we say that the exodus of Egypt wasn't only something that benefited, benefited the generation that was experiencing it, but by their experiencing the exodus from it, we stand to gain as a future generation that we are also free of the powers of Paro and the Paros of Mitzrayim. That's essentially, and I think this is the, the typical interpretation of what's going on over here. What I'd like to concentrate just a couple of moments on over here is, and this is something which is very, very fundamental, in, uh, and it comes up in many different ways in questions that people ask about this period of time. Jews certainly believe, Jews certainly believe in the dynamic ability that we have to make changes. We believe in that. We don't believe that we get stuck in a place and that forever we are there. Nevertheless, the Balagada seems to suggest, well, if that historical event wouldn't have happened, there, then we would have been stuck. And we're not saying stuck geographically, we're talking stuck spiritually. What is that all about? We don't believe in getting stuck. So what is this all about? What is this supposed to mean? Who says that there wouldn't have been a generation that could have evolved to have the strength to be able to tear themselves away? How do we know with such a, with a, such a definity that the, in, the inside quality of what a Jew is all about would not have been able to rip themselves away at a, at a, at a later date? Now or never. Jews don't believe in now or never. Jews believe that there's always a, a, a door open. And this is a common question that comes up. It comes up in many different ways. Some people ask the question, just for the sake of showing where the pet question can apply, some people ask the question that they don't understand the difference between spiritual exodus from Egypt and the concept of the process of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is also in a certain sense a spiritual exodus and a spiritual freedom from one's past. And are they the same concept? And if they are the same concept, why, isn't Pesach, uh, why doesn't Pesach flow together with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Why is Pesach at one point of the year and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur at a different point of the year? Are they different concepts? Is Pesach a time of tshuva? We don't see that our literature talks about Pesach as a time of tshuva. We see that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is a time of tshuva. But we say that Pesach is a time of exodus from spiritual captivity. Isn't exodus from spiritual captivity a state of tshuva? Isn't that what it's all about? How could you more eloquently talk about tshuva than man extricating himself from a state of spiritual captivity? So that's another way that expresses really the same confusion. What's the answer to this? So there's a very fundamental answer to this. And that is that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata develops this concept, and really it's based in, in a lot of our literature, that the Maral talks about it extensively in his, in his writings, the Gvur Hashem. He speaks about the fact that the Jew was undergoing the development of a neshama. Not that the Jew's neshama was already developed and now it has become captivated in, in exile of Egypt and it had to be freed. We're not talking about a condition where we have an entity called Jewish soul. Jewish soul is put into captivity and Jewish soul is granted, granted freedom from Jewish from captivity. All of the events up until the giving of Tyra is the pregnancy of the Jewish soul. It's the gestation period and the development of the neshama of the Jewish people. The idea that the neshama is a completed product and now is undergoing a historical event of exile and exodus is an incorrect one. That's not true. The entire period of time is a period of time that what the Jew sustained in his history is going into the very development of the Jewish soul. Let me give you a dramatic example of this, 
a disturbing but dramatic example of this. Our commentaries say, at least according to one opinion, our commentaries say that only one-fifth of the Jewish population that existed in Egypt in fact left Egypt. Four-fifths never left. So when we look at this piece of, piece of history, we wonder to ourselves, Jews lost forever? We don't live with those kinds of concepts. And the answer being that the entire process until the giving of Torah was a process by which we were gaining and we were developing that which we refer to as Nishmas Klal Yisrael, the Neshama of the Jewish people. That was the period of time that developed. So in the development, there were those Nishamas that developed and became that which would then become worthy through the process of the crowning touches of Torah, which would be the fullest development of the neshama. And there were others that along the path, along the path, didn't reach that heightened state of spiritual development. The reality is that the world started off with a whole conglomerate of neshamas, and all of the neshamas had the opportunity of undergoing this development and becoming the same kind of quality as the soul of the Jewish people. There were those that opted out of that and weren't interested in that form of development, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata said. But they were all given a chance for that level of, of neshama development in their ability to receive or not to receive the Torah. For that matter, if Moshe Chaim Litzata says that for all times a human being that wants to ascend to that higher level of soul development has the prerogative as an individual to go through a process of obligation and, conver and subsequently conversion. But what we're talking about when we're talking about all of these historical events is not a fait accompli on, the, on a neshama and now the neshama is merely going through a journey of history. But what we're talking about in all of these events is what actually develops the neshama of Klal Yisrael. Now, this isn't to say that there weren't individuals as individuals that didn't develop their neshama. Certainly Avram did and Yitzchak did and Yaakov did. Okay, certainly those people did, but on the national level, okay, the 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 soul of the Jewish people, in a in the in the strength of a national stature, that was something that was developing now. Kabbalistically, we even refer to the fact that nationally, this soul needed six hundred thousand people that went through development process before our souls would have this national force, this national thrust. So we're talking on a national level, but what we're talking about is the creative process that actually creates those souls. Now, if that's the case, we understand much better what's going on over here. <speaking in Hebrew> if we would not have gone out of Mitzrayim, which means we would have not gone through the process of spiritual development to create that kind of soul. We would forever remain that quality and that level soul that never got to the stage of birth, never got to the stage of creation. And that's the point that, that this, the Haggadah is saying over here. So when we sit down to the Seder night, we're not merely celebrating freedom of a neshama that was created, but what we're really celebrating is the neshama's freedom from the forces that wouldn't have allowed for the birth of the neshama. It's a much deeper concept than freedom. In other words, we think that the neshama was there, but it had to have freedom. Right? What we're saying now is that the, the level of cheris, the level of freedom that we're talking about, the level of freedom that we're talking about is the level of freedom that allows the very creation of the neshama itself. And that's what we're saying here. If it wasn't for Mitzrayim, we would still be there. In other words, if it wasn't for the Exodus, we would still be there. What does that mean? We wouldn't have experienced the level we would have been in pregnancy, but no birth. Pregnancy with no birth leaves, leaves the fetus dead. It, it wouldn't have been created. It wouldn't have come into being. And that's the point that we're saying over here. 
<coughs> With this, we understand another concept which constantly visits us in our literature. The numerous mitzvahs that we do, Zecher liyitziyas Mitzrayim, in memory of our going out of Egypt. Now, the commentaries are very perplexed with this. The commentaries say it almost seems as if the mitzvahs are contingent on a historical event that doesn't speak too well. That doesn't speak too well for what the mitzvahs are. What do you mean? Mitzvahs are, are God's wisdom, God's expression of His will for this world. I mean, they should have a value in and of themselves. But the Torah seems to link a lot of the mitzvahs. The Torah seems to say, link all of the mitzvahs because of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, because of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. You know, one begins to ask themselves, what if Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim wouldn't have happened? Then what? These mitzvahs wouldn't be here. But these mitzvahs are God's will. God's will is not contingent upon history. What's going on here? So the Shalah HaKadosh, who was a great Kabbalist, explains the same thing. He says, sure the mitzvahs would have been. Of course the mitzvahs would have existed. But the Jew would not have had a way to really relate to them. Because since his neshama wouldn't have gone through this creative birth process, so the neshama would have never reached that level of, of spiritual birth, and therefore the mitzvahs wouldn't be able to relate to an underdeveloped neshama. So when we say, what we are saying is that these mitzvahs, the, these mitzvahs have their relevancy all because we went through that birth process. And in that sense, these mitzvahs remind us of the fact that we went through that creative process. <coughs> Again, the same concept. Let's continue in the text now. And even if we are all intelligent people, and we're very understanding people, and we're scholars and elders, and we really know the Torah, we have a requirement to speak about our going out of Egypt, and we can't claim we know it all. And the person that, that uh, speaks more and more about our going out of Egypt, he's performed the mitzvah in, in, in a praiseworthy way. Okay, now, what's the concept over here? The concept over here is that Sipur Yitzhiyas Misraim is not merely the transmission of fact. For were it only the transmission of fact, those that would already know it, why do they have to talk about it? Why do they have to discuss it? So our commentaries are saying here that Sipur Yitzhiyas Misraim goes beyond the concept, goes beyond the concept of merely speaking out facts. But it doesn't say what it is. It doesn't say what it is. And obviously there are many different interpretations. Those of you that were here for the first Seder class, we discussed the concept that through speaking, a person actually creates a different clarity and a different connection to the material. The fact that a person has an idea in his head until he's, he's pressed to, to, uh, to bring it to a communicative level of expression is really not the same thing. And very often an idea or a concept gets a life in its expression. And we spoke about the fact that that's really what Exodus from Egypt was all about. There were a lot of things inside of the Jew, but until he expressed his freedom, they didn't ha until he had his freedom, there was no form to freely express all of that which was inside. This is something that we said, and I'm not reneging on it. I'm not going back on that. But I think that there's another message over here as well. And this is based on something that my father used to be fond of saying by the Seder, year in and year out. He used to say the following thing. He used to say, The person that really speaks a lot about our going out of Egypt, so what is the literal translation? The literal translation is, he's performed the mitzvah in a more praiseworthy way. Okay? So my father used to say over from his Rebbe, 
the Mashgiach in the Miri Yeshiva, he used to say over the following thing, that the person that goes, really gets into Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, it's not that the mitzvah is being performed in a better way. means that the person is Meshubach. The person is more praiseworthy. What does that mean? What does that mean? One person talks less. One person talks more. Big deal. But why is the, why is the person more Meshubach? Why is the person a better person? So we, my father said over from his Rebbe that when we look at history and when we look at an event that we have to make the admission that had that event not happened I would be a completely different person. That, number one, requires a tremendous sense of humility. Number two, it, cre- it requires a cre- tremendous sense of the ability to express appreciation. A person that doesn't have humility doesn't want to say that if this wouldn't have happened or if you wouldn't have done this for me, I would have been nothing today. That's a very humiliating kind of statement to have to make. Right? That I was dependent upon a, an event in history. And if it wouldn't have happened, I'd be nothing. It's a very humiliating kind of thing. Besides being a, humi- a humiliating kind of a thing to say, it's also a statement that only can be made when a person has a sense of wanting to express gratitude. Why should I make such a statement if it's not that by making the statement... I'm bringing myself to a level of understanding how important it was and how much I should recognize the good that was done for me. It's a level of appreciation. So therefore, my father's Rebbe said, A person that can open up his mouth and really talk about it in an uninhibited fashion, the person is a better person. Because that's the ability to, to be able to express appreciation. Now, the, the ability to express appreciation, okay, some people misinterpret this. And some people say that the ability to express appreciation is because the other person needs to be recognized. He did something for you. And if he did something for you, the least he deserves is a thank you. But when we're talking about the expression of appreciation in relationship to God, God doesn't need our thank yous. I mean, God doesn't need it. So what's this fuss about showing appreciation? So the point is that showing appreciation is not only important because the other person deserves to receive the appreciation. Showing appreciation is critical for my development. In other words, for me as a human being to grow in terms of my personality, to grow as a mensch, to grow as a human being, I have to be able to recognize that things are being done for me. Good things are happening. The ability to be able to recognize those things and not to shy away from them and not to be in denial of them, but to recognize that something good is happening, even if the other person is not going to be added, the other person is not going to get anything for my thank you. But for me not to say thank you, for me not to sense the appreciation, is a deficiency in me. There's a very interesting thing. You know where we have this concept? The first two plagues, no, the first three plagues, excuse me, Dam Tzvardea Kinim, the blood plague, that the water turned to blood, Tzvardea, that out of the water came the frogs, and Kinim, the insects, that came out of the earth. So how were those plagues initiated? So Aaron took the rod of Moses, Okay, and hit the water, and with that, God made the water turn to blood. He hit the water, or he raised it over the water, and the frogs came out. He hit the earth, and then the insects came up from the earth. So if we look in the Chumash, obviously the question is, why did Aaron do those three plagues, and not Moses? All the other plagues Moses did, but these first three plagues, Aaron did, not Moses. So you know what the commentaries say? The commentaries say because when Moses was a little baby, he was put into a casket and he was set afloat in the water. 
And the water kept him afloat and kept him alive until somebody had pity for him. And the earth uh, Moses used to cover up and to bury the Mitzri, the Egyptian that he had killed, who was almost ready to kill a Jew. And he had covered up the Egyptian in that way, and therefore the water and the earth had given Moses a break. Therefore, our commentaries say that God didn't want that Moses should hit the water or hit the earth, because that would have been a demonstration of, of hitting something that helped you. Hitting something that helped you. That would be contrary to showing appreciation. So the Talmud says, I don't understand what you're talking about. Water doesn't have sensitivity. And earth doesn't have sensitivity. You can hit it from today till tomorrow. It won't scream ouch. What's this whole business about? Showing appreciation. And if you hit the earth and if you hit the water, it's not a showing appreciation. So the commentaries say it's very simple. The commentaries say because the showing of the appreciation is not because the other person has to receive it. That's also true. Certainly if the other person needs to receive it, he deserves it. But besides the fact that the other person deserves to receive the appreciation, the problem is with me. If Moshe Rabbeinu would have taken the rod and hit the water because he demonstrated a physical act of hitting that which helped him, it would have been contrary to the culture wasn't allowed to initiate those plagues. So what do we see from this? That showing appreciation, showing appreciation is a critical component in my development. If we don't have the showing of appreciation, spirituality doesn't begin. Because then we don't recognize the goodness that's done with us. We don't recognize and appreciate the gifts that were given to us. And then there is no basis of menschlichkeit. There's no basis of human decency upon which any form of spirituality is based. Without menschlichkeit, there is no spirituality. The basis of all spirituality begins with menschlichkeit, with being a mensch, being a person, being a decent person. Human decency. That's where it starts from. And thematic to the night of Pesach is thematic to the night of Pesach is Hakaras Hatoiv, showing appreciation. This is also the reason why on this night that we show appreciation, so it's not just to detail history, it's not just to talk about history, but it's to become excited about things that God did in order that we should develop a sense of appreciation. That's why on the night of Pesach we don't only talk about the the miracles that happened to our forefathers, but this is a night that we also express appreciation for the miracles that happened to us, which is something which I spoke about earlier as well. That's the story that's going on here. And in order to confirm this story, the Haggadah goes on and says, Maiseb Rebelezev, Reb Yeshuav, Rebelezev, and Azariah, Rebekiv, Rebtarfin, there was this incident that occurred with great Torah sages, Rebelezev, Reb Yeshuav, Rebelezev, and Azariah, Rebekiv, and Rebtarfin, that they were all sitting and that they were discussing the Haggadah on the night of the Seder. And they were speaking all about going out of Egypt on that night, all night long, until their students came in the morning and said, It has come time to say the Kriyash Shema of the morning. It has come time to say the Kriyash Shema of the morning. The simple translation of this is that this is a support. We said that no matter how knowledgeable you are, no matter how knowledgeable you are, you're required to get involved in the story of Egypt. So in order to support this, this statement, the Balagod is telling us a story. It's telling us a story how these people went through the entire night talking about Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim until their disciples had to come and tell them it's time to perform the mitzvah of Kriyashma. Now, obviously, you don't think that you're going to get away with that. There's more to this as well. Our commentaries explain... Our commentaries explain... <coughs> that there's a significance in the fact 
that the disciples came and said it's time for Kriyas Shema. I mean, why did the disciples come and say it's time to daven? It's time to pray. The disciples came and said it's time to say Kriyas Shema. And if you look at the Balagada, he says it's time to say Kriyas Shema Shel Shachris. What does that mean? What is, what, what's the reference over here? So there are different interpretations to this, what this is supposed to mean. <coughs> there are different interpretations to what this is supposed to mean. I would like to share with you one particular interpretation which is somewhat, an, uh, somewhat original in nature. In general, in general, Kriyat Shema is the mitzvah that is a proclamation of faith and belief. That's what it is. We believe that you are a God, you're a God of justice, you're a God of love, you're a God who is one, even though we don't necessarily have a way of reconciling everything in history. And it has ultimately always been the statement of abiding faith. Shvai Yisrael. Now, in that sense, in that sense, what the disciples were telling their rabbis was that after a whole night of clarity and after a whole night of discussion of bringing the points to a higher level of clarity, after everything is said and done, a Jew still remains, still remains with, with a foundation of faith. Because as much as a person has in his, in, in, his, in, in his intellect the capacity to understand and to clarify and to make, to make much more clear the points, after everything is said and done, there is still that foundation of faith that a Jew needs. And therefore what the disciples said is fine to be involved in intellectual pursuits of all of the meanings of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. But after everything is said and done, the Jew, after everything is said and done, after all of his explanations and after all his clarity, the strength of the Jew has always been that there is a basis of faith in God for that which is unexplainable. And this is the classical definition that's given to this particular episode. I would like to say a little bit differently from this interpretation. The entire idea of Shema, we know that the mitzvah of Shema Yisrael is, is a bi-daily event. It happens twice during the day. There's a Kriyash Shema Shel Shachris and there's a Kriyash Shema Shel Arvis. There's a, there's a Kriyash Shema in the morning and there's a Kriyash Shema at night. There are two Kriyash Shemas. Now, are they merely the same thing, but we say them when we get up and we say it when we go to sleep, like you begin your day and end your day with it? Or is there a deeper meaning to it? I think that there is a deeper meaning to it, and it's based on something which Lozado says. Lozado talks about the fact that we have three prayers spaced in, in the day. We have Shachas in the morning, Mincha in the afternoon, and Mayrav in the evening. That's what we have. And we know that one of the bases of these three sh prayers is based on Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Avram prayed the Shachris prayer. He instituted Shachris. Yitzchak instituted Mincha. And Yaakov instituted Ma'ariv. Okay? Now, without going through a lengthy explanation of this, each one of them composed the prayer that was unique to their spiritual strength. What do I mean by this? Avram's unique spiritual strength was chesed. That's what it was. He saw God's giving. He emulated God's giving. Because of his giving, he saw God's giving. Yet Avram's connection to God and his message to the world was the message of giving. Chesed. That was Avram. Therefore, which part of the day was Avram most excited about, if not the dawn of a new day of opportunity? That after the night was over and everything was asleep, a new day was beginning, full of opportunity, and what you messed up yesterday you can fix today, and what you couldn't get to yesterday you can do today, and what you were dead tired and you couldn't approach last night, now you wake up with new vigor. The morning hours are referred to as the more as the hours of God's display of chesed. So Avram was exhilarated with this. And Avram wanted 
to express his thanks for the chesed, for the loving kindness of a new day, which took the form of Shachris. That's why Avram composed Shachris. On the other hand, Yaakov, I'm skipping Yitzhak because it's not pertinent to the Kriyashma, Yaakov created Ma'ariv. What is Ma'ariv? Ma'ariv is the prayer that we daven in darkness. That's the exact opposite of Shachris. Ma'ariv is when everything goes to sleep and it gets dark in the world. And people are more afraid about being protected than not at night than during the day. It's a period of time when you can't see clearly. It's a period of time that's symbolically a period of time that one has to trust and one looks for protection. That's what the period of time is. Now, Yaakov in his life lived through four major crises. And each one of those crises, our commentary says, parallels one of the Jews' exiles that would come in future time. What's the greatest challenge of the exile? It's dark. We don't see the light. We don't see the purpose. We don't see how we're going to come out of it. So God put into Yaakov's life these challenges that parallel the future historical challenges in order to blaze the path that we would be able to have the strength to survive those dark periods of our history. Why were they given to Yaakov? They were given to Yaakov because Yaakov had ascended to a very, very high level of a balance between God's loving kindness and God's justice. The two, the balance between the two creates the state which is referred to as the state of emes, the state of truth. In that state of truth, which is the balance between loving kindness and justice, one can be able to experience both and not see a contradiction, but see that there is a healthy, intelligent blend and retain faith. That's why it was given to Yaakov. And therefore, Yaakov composes Tfilas Mairif. You want to know the best, you know, a way of remembering this? When did Yaakov compose Tfilas Mairif? Do you know when? When he had to run out of Eretz Yisrael and go into Gullus to run away from his brother Esav. The Torah says, Vayifka Bamakam, Vayolan Sham. He reached that place and he slept there. So the Torah says, Vayifka is Lush and Tfilah. It's the language of prayer. When he was going into Gullus, when he was going into exile, he prayed Tfilas Ma'ariv. So therefore, Ma'ariv is the prayer of what? Of belief. Of belief. So now, What's going on, if that's the, the context of the prayer, so now when we come to Kriyash Shema, it's also the same. When we come to Kriyash Shema, the Kriyash Shema of the morning is one kind of Kriyash Shema, and the Kriyash Shema of the night is another kind of Kriyash Shema. The Kriyash Shema of the morning is the recognition of God giving to this world, that He is a creator of this world and He's given to this world, and I, I want to show my appreciation for his giving. And even though I don't necessarily see where this is all leading, I am gripping on to the fact that God is a creator, and creator is the greatest form of giving. The whole world was his giving. But the Shema of the morning is a statement that proclaims the thrill of God's chesed with the world, my belief in God's giving to the world. On the other hand, the Kriyat Shema of Ma'ariv is when we don't see the giving, but that we hold on in faith. We hold on in a certain degree of emunah. That's why the morning after we finish Shema, what do we say? What's the last word of the Shema? Emes. And then what's the next word? The Yatsiv and It's sure. It's established. It's true. It's absolute. No questions. What's the last word of Shema at night? Emes. And what's the next word? The emunah. It's belief. A different story. The morning is v'yatsa v'nachain. It's, it's all clear. The night is emes v'amuna. The night is, is the concepts of belief. This is what's going on over here. What happened over here was like this. That what the disciples told them was that after you spent the entire night clarifying through Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim. In other words, you utilized your night as what? You went through your whole night 
understanding all of the greatness and all of the goodness that God gave. That's what you used your night for. So they said, Now you can go to the Kriyashma Shel Shachris. Under normal circumstances, the Kriyashma of the night and the Kriyashma of the morning don't flow one from the other. The Kriyashma of the night is the Kriyashma of belief. The Kriyashma of the morning is the excitement of seeing God's giving. But what the Talmudim said, but since you turned your night into day, in other you turned your night into day. Because the entire night you show, you spoke about what the chesed, the loving kindness of what God did when we left Egypt. You've reached in your discussions of night the kriyashma of the morning. In other words, you have, you're not left with the lila. You've reached in your discussions this night, you've reached the Kriyashma of morning, not of night. You've reached the Kriyashma of morning. And that is a possible interpretation. <coughs> Let's turn to page 11. Not because the things that are in between are not important, but because let's just get some selections here. We have a limited amount of time. Let's get some selections here. If you notice that which is parallels the number five on the page, Yachol Me Rosh Chodesh. I would think that there's a requirement to, to, of the mitzvah of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim from Rosh Chodesh. From Rosh Chodesh. Right? From the beginning of the month of Nisan. Why would I think so? And then the, 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 the Haggadah says, no, it says by Yomahu on the day that we went out. If, if it would be on the day that we went out, I would think that it would be during the day. So then it says, no, only when matzah and marah are in front of you. Does everybody have that? All the way, starting from line five. Why do you think that you have to start from Rosh Chodesh? Okay, why would I think that you start from Rosh Chodesh? Why would I think that I would start on the day of what? Of the 14th of Nisan? And then only with verses we prove that it's on the night of the 15th. It's very simple. Those of you that were here by the, for the class on Tuesday understand it very well. Because on Rosh Chodesh we got the gift of being able to halt the past and to gain strength of, for the present based on our future. The whole idea of Rosh Chodesh is that a person cuts with his past and he gains strength in his present at the beginning of the month based on his future potential. It's a period of renewal, Rosh Chodesh. And it was on Rosh Chodesh Nissan that God said, I'm giving you the strength of cutting with your past and gaining strength from your future. So that itself was a gift of freedom. So therefore the Balagada says, Yachal mei Rosh Chodesh. I would think that from Rosh Chodesh that we should already discuss our going out of Egypt because from Rosh Chodesh we already, we're grand, we already received a level of freedom. The ability, the whole theme of the class Tuesday night was that the Jew had to seize his own freedom. How does he seize his own freedom? With the gift of Rosh Chodesh. And what, what was the other thing that we said? By his buying the, the, the Passover sacrifice and actually sacrificing it in spite of the fact that it was the idol of Egypt. So therefore, the, the, the Balagada says, I would think that on Rosh Chodesh, I would start talking about it. And then I think I would start talking about it on Yudalad. Why on Yudalad? Why on the 14th day of Nisan? On the day, excuse me? Right, because on that day... I said, I couldn't care less. You know, until you do it, it's not the same thing like planning. But on the day of Yudalad, they slaughtered the idol of Egypt. They were seizing their own freedom. They were saying, I don't care what Egypt thinks. I'm going to seize my own freedom. So I would think that on the day of Yudalad, on the day of the 14th, I should start talking about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So the Talmud says, no, that the discussion of freedom has to be discussed only with matzah and marer munachim lefunacha. You need, in order to adequately and correctly discuss Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim, we have to have matzah and marer in front of us. And that's obviously on the night of the 15th. Now, this obviously needs to be understood. What is the uniqueness? In other words, the fact that we were given the gift to break with our past and gain strength from our future isn't enough to start. 
the fact that we slaughtered the idol of Egypt and we made a major statement that we're going to seize our freedom, that's not, not enough to start the discussion of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim. What do we need? Not Pesach, not Kiddush HaChodesh. What do we need? We need Matzah and Marah. And the question is why? Why do we need Matzah and Marah? What do we need both of those things for? Well, <clears throat> I'd like to share with you a, a, an interesting concept. And in order to share it with you appropriately, let's just go a drop further in the Haggadah and to get what's going on here, the flavor of what's going on. Mitchila, from the very beginning, I'm going to come back to this question. Mitchila, from the beginning of our history, our forefathers before Abraham were idol worshippers. And look at us now. God has brought us close to him. Now, without going into the whole description of the paragraph, which is very worthwhile to think about, this concept, which we are now in being introduced to, is the concept of maschil bignus or Messiah bishvach. What does that mean? That you start off talking about the bad times and how, about how at the beginning of the whole thing we were in, in rough straits, in difficult straits, and how in the end everything worked out so gloriously and there was a happy ever after. Now, there's a requirement on the night of the Seder to start with the Gnust, to start with how dark it was, and to end off with how good it got. This happens to be a theme in the Sipur Yetzias Mitzrayim. We speak about all of the threats that Jews went through. We speak about all of the difficult times. But how, in the end, it all had a happy end. That's the halacha. Maskel Bignus. You start with Gnus, with the, that which is not so nice, or Messiah, and then you end off Bishvach. You end off with that which is very nice, and you like to talk about it. Now, most people... Most commentaries would say that what's the idea over here? The idea over here is like this. When a person expresses appreciation, he can express appreciation because the thing itself is good, but a person can also express appreciation because it has changed so much. In other words, sometimes I say, I, I thank you because the thing itself is wonderful. Forget about the fact. Forget about the fact the, uh, it has nothing to do, it, there's no bearing to what was before. The thing itself is a wonderful thing. And I'm showing appreciation because the thing is wonderful. Sometimes the thing has even greater, uh, a person has a greater appreciation for it because in relationship to what was before, this is a dramatic improvement. Let's say a person is, is very, very sick and then becomes, is getting a lot better certainly can't yet function like everybody else, but is a lot better than they were before. So if appreciation is only when something is wonderful, it's not wonderful. But if appreciation is also for the change, for a dramatic change from a state that was no good, so then the appreciation is in relationship to what was before. So in that regard, what we're doing over here is that what we're saying is that we have to show appreciation to God for both. We have to show appreciation to God because where we landed up in the end was wonderful in a relationship with God, but even greater thanks because where did we start off? We started off in such a miserable place. And this is normally what's understood. In other words, this magnifies the sense of the, thing, of the goodness that has occurred with us, and therefore if it magnifies the sense of good, it should magnify the sense of appreciation. That's the literal translation of Maschil Bignus of Messiah Bishrach. It brings to, it, it orchestrates a level of appreciation that puts the whole thing into the proper perspective. This is the normal way that it's explained. Right? But there is really, in, in, in truth, there is a much deeper perspective to this. And I don't know if I'll have time to prove it. I'll try. But there's a much deeper perspective in Maskel Bignus and Messiah and Bishvach. You start off with the bad and end off with the good. A much deeper perspective. You know what the deeper perspective is? Because when you talk about bad, the beginning which was bad and the end which was good, 
you could have, you could say to yourself like this, it would have been better that there wasn't a bad beginning. But now that there was, I feel even better about the good end. But the fact that I feel good about the, the end, in other words, that's lovely. But in other words, when you go through bad times and then you get to good times, there's a nature that a person could say to themselves, the bad times really didn't have any purpose. They're behind me. Obviously, I'm very thankful that it changed. But my perspective of the past is it would have been better if it wouldn't have happened. That's not the Jewish perspective. The Jewish perspective of Maskel Bignus and Messiah and Bishvach is that we, a Jew sees the total picture. Okay, the Jew sees that the beginnings also were significant. The Gnus, the difficult times, the hard times, also contribute to the magnificence of the end. And they had their time and they had their place. When we look at the, our exodus from Egypt, we don't say it would have been better that 210 years of exile wouldn't have occurred. No. We say the 210 years of exile were miserable. But we know that because it ultimately led to this good end, it had to be there. And we grew from it, and there was significance in it. And that's what the Jew is doing with Maskel Bignos and Messiah and Bishvach. He's not in denial of his past. He's in recognition of his past and accepting and being and reconciling his past with the with the end result that it created that's the maskel bignus of messiah bishvach now if that's the case and i'll try if i have time i'll try to prove it if that's the case now going back we understand very well i would think that what that i should start talking about freedom when on rosh chodesh I would think that I should start talking about freedom when on the day of that we slaughtered the carbon Pesach on the 14th. Talmud Lomar, Bavur Zeh, that you don't talk about the freedom until when? Until the night when the matzah and the mara are in front of you. Now, what did we explain at the beginning of the class? That the whole idea of talking about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is a way of what? Of showing appreciation. When do we show appreciation? with the matzah and the murrah in front of us. In other words, the matzah is the symbolism of freedom. The murrah is the symbolism of the difficult times. We're not showing the appreciation just for the good times. We want to talk about Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim with matzah and murrah munachim lefanecha. Because when we say thank you to God, we're not only saying thank you to God for the freedom, but we recognize that the murrah also has a function in the freedom, that the murrah also serves a purpose. And therefore, the discussion of Sipur Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, which is a discussion of what? Of hakaras hatayv, of appreciation, is bishoshem matzah umarar munachim lefanecha, when the matzah and the murrah are both in front of you. Now, let's try, okay, let's try in the remaining moments to, to possibly show this idea in the Haggadah. Let's try, in the remaining time that we have, let's try to show this idea in the Haggadah itself. It's all over the Haggadah, this concept. Not only the concept of appreciation, but the concept of appreciation that puts all of the pain into the proper perspective as well. The first thing that we see, let's read on over here. What does it say over here? It says, we start off as idol worshippers, and the end was that we were brought close to God's worship. As it says, and God said to Yeshua, excuse me, and Yeshua said to the people, so said God, the God of Israel, I want you to know that on the other side of the Nahar your forefathers lived, Terach, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahar, and they were idol worshippers. Okay? And they were idol worshippers. 
And now let's continue the text inside. And I took your father, Avram, from that place, and I took him on a journey through the land of Canaan, and I multiplied his seed, and I gave him Yitzchak, and I gave to Yitzchak Yaakov and Esav, and Esav took the portion of Seir to inherit it, and Yaakov and his children went down to Mitzrayim. Thank you. Doesn't sound very wonderful, does it? Our forefathers... Okay, so most commentaries would say... What would most commentaries say? Most commentaries would say, yeah, this is the gnos, this is the ugly stuff. The good stuff we'll get to later. This is the gnos. But that's not what's going on over here. What's going on over here is like this. What we're being told, let's, let's look at that. He took our father from the other side, that's good, right? And he took us through the land of Canaan, and he multiplied our children, or a promise to multiply our children, and he gave us Yitzchak. And, and then he gave, from Yitzchak, he gave Yaakov and Esav. Thank you, the world would have been better without Esav. And then I gave Esav the portion of Seir, and Yaakov and his children went down to Mitzrayim. Now looking at that, who got the better deal? Esav seemingly got the better deal, didn't he? Esav got his portion. The Jew would have to wait 210 years in Egypt, another 40 years in the desert, and then 14 years to conquer the land of Israel, and then get his portion. The hard way. But what's the point over here? What God is saying is that the easy way is not necessarily the good way, and the hard way is not necessarily the good way. The hard way is not necessarily the bad way. And he's pointing out that Esau didn't have to go through the development. He right away got the portion that was his portion in this world. But the Jew couldn't go right away to Eretz Yisrael. He had to be separated from Esau, and he had to go down to Mitzrayim. He had to go through a period of development. So though it would appear that Esau got instant reward, and Yaakov's not getting it, no fears, Right? But the reality of what's going on over here is that we're recognizing the fact that the one that gets it quicker and faster and easier is not necessarily better off. Okay? Let's go on a little bit further into the next...